Welcome to Odo Mentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. This is episode 13 Choosing a Fellowship in Otolaryngology, the Head and Neck Edition. My guest today is Dr. Carissa Thomas, a newly minted head and neck fellowship trained otolaryngologist at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Carissa graduated with an MD-PhD from Baylor College of Medicine, then joined us at Colorado for her residency training. She just completed a one-year head and neck fellowship at the University of Toronto. Welcome to the show, Carissa. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. Well, let's get right into it. So how did you decide to do otolaryngology as a specialty? I knew... I think pretty early on in medical school that I definitely was geared more towards surgery than any of the medical specialties because I just really loved being in the operating room. I really liked working with my hands and I liked the fact that you could try to fix a problem right in front of you. I liked the kind of trust you built with a patient that they were willing to let you operate on them. And I really enjoyed all the different personalities that came out in the operating room. So the actual decision to do surgery was easy. The decision as to what type of surgery to do was a bit harder, but I actually had my first experience with otolaryngology just as a random assignment. Doing the MD-PhD program, we had to do this class at the end of grad school that basically reminded you how to be a doctor again. And and, in that class, they just assigned me randomly to this neurotologist that worked at Texas Children's. And he did primarily cochlear implants. And it was really fun seeing the kids and their families get really excited about being able to hear again and, you know, working with them over that course. Before that kind of random assignment, I didn't know a thing about otolaryngology, but after that, I was hooked. And then I did every rotation that I could possibly do in medical school. Okay. So then how did you decide to do head and neck fellowship? That decision was actually much easier. That's probably one of the easiest decisions I have ever made, to be honest. I really, really like the head and neck cancer patients. I think like overall, they're just really good people. They're very down to earth. They're very grateful. And you get to know them and their families really well because you see them for hopefully such a long period of time as you're working through their diagnosis and then their treatment and recovery. And then finally, cancer surveillance afterwards. I really liked that long-term relationship that you build. And and then I'm borrowing this little piece of advice from someone else. But um, I was told that you should always pick a subspecialty, not for the really cool case or the really cool thing that you get to do once every three months, but because the most annoying part of the subspecialty doesn't actually annoy you. So, for example, in head and neck, I think... (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's great advice because like in head and neck, I think a lot of people get bothered or just like the high rate of complications that we have, or they, you know, get annoyed with the patients that are struggling with their smoking and alcohol dependence or addiction. And those aspects of head and neck have never bothered me. So I like kind of the day-to-day grind just as much as the really cool case that I get to do every three months or so. Great. 
So at what point during residency did you make this easy decision to do Head and Neck Fellowship? <laughs> I laugh because I actually made that decision before I even applied for residency. <laughs> okay. I, I decided during my fourth year of medical school after I had spent a month at MD Anderson doing exclusively Head and Neck. And so I applied to otolaryngology thinking that I was going to do head and neck to be a head and neck surgeon. And I like to think that I kept an open mind <laughs> during residency to see if I liked anything better. Um, and I didn't. <laughs> Some yeah, people so- might argue that maybe I didn't keep an open mind, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, destiny, I guess. Right. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. yeah. So how competitive is Head & Neck Fellowship application? I think the great thing about Head & Neck is it's not the most competitive subspecialty out of otolaryngology, which is nice. It does vary from year to year. I think most years there's about 50 to 55 spots available between the U.S. and Canada. And there's probably about 45 or so applicants. And that's just referring to the accredited fellowship spots that are through the American Head and Neck Society. You can also do a non-accredited fellowship, and there are like new ones popping up at different programs every year. So if, if you don't actually match to the accredited spots or there's not one that fits your particular interests, then the non-accredited spots are also a, a good option for some people. What's the main difference between the accredited and non-accredited spots? I think the accredited spots have, I think, a little bit more history behind them. For most of them, they are regulated by the American Head and Neck Society, so there are site visits. Recently, the American Head and Neck Society started a curriculum of kind of basic head and neck knowledge that you need to be a competent head and neck surgeon. And so all of that is incorporated into the accredited fellowship programs. The non-accredited spots is basically whoever decides they want a, a fellow and so you can be exposed to or learn kind of whatever their practice is. There's less, I guess, just less regulation. And yeah. at the end of the day, from the accredited spots, you do get a nice certificate from the American Head Neck Society stating that you completed their you know, fellowship program successfully. And you won't have that documentation if you do a non-accredited spot. Okay. So what's the timeline yeah. for the application and the interviews? So the American Head and Neck Society, if you do the accredited application, um, they centralize it. So it's just one application, which is really nice. They usually post it right around this time of year. So somewhere in the end of October, November timeframe. Most applicants apply their fourth year of residency, and you basically you fill out the application, get your letters of recommendation and personal statement, and send all of that in to the American Head Neck Society coordinator, JJ, along with a list of the programs you want to apply to, and then he distributes the completed application to all of the programs. And his kind of window is from December to March, usually. And then interviews are from February to June of your fourth year, with most like the brunt of the the interviews happening in like April and May of your fourth year. 
Then you have until June 15th to submit your rank list, which also goes to JJ. And then he sends out the match results on July 1st, so your first day of your chief year of residency. And then you start the following July. Nice. Okay. So what are the differences among the head and neck fellowship programs? Like when you're looking at programs and deciding where to go, what's the main difference there? I think probably the first thing you need to do is you have to make two big decisions. The first decision is, do you want to learn microvascular reconstructive surgery as part of your fellowship? That's decision one. And then the second decision is, do you want to do a one-year or a two-year fellowship? I think at this point, all of the accredited fellowships give you the opportunity to learn microvascular reconstruction to some level. MD Anderson and Memorial Sloan Kettering require you to do two years if you want to learn micro. And the University of Toronto will give you the option of two years. If you decide, like, I absolutely only want to do an ablative fellowship, no recon at all, um, you can do that for just one year at MD Anderson or Memorial Sloan Kettering or Toronto. I think all the other programs, you have to do at least a little bit of micro. And then MD Anderson and Memorial Sloan Kettering also do a two-year ablative and research fellowship position. You can kind of make a few little combinations. And then the other, like the cool thing about head and neck fellowships is that you can really tailor them to your interests. So every fellowship offers a varying degree of exposure to transoral robotic surgery or transoral laser surgery or TLM or endoscopic skull-based surgery. So if you're really interested in one of those, you can find a fellowship that really has a lot of exposure to that. Similarly, with like endocrine surgery, I think like all fellowships will give you exposure to doing thyroids and parathyroids, but some fellowships have like a dedicated block of time where that's all you do is just exclusively endocrine surgery. So it's nice because there's so much flexibility and you can just really find what you're interested in. Going back around to the idea of the standardized curriculum, there is some question of like how will that impact or change the flexibility in the fellowship, but that's all very new and kind of unknown. <laughs> at this so point. it's so it's not mandatory yet. It's just a outline of the education. Exactly. Yeah, it's like a suggestion for what they should be teaching you in fellowships. Okay. And then, how did you decide what you wanted to do? That's a tough question. <laughs> I think. I initially really wanted to only do ablative, but in my discussions with people as I started the application process and the interview process, it's getting increasingly more difficult to find a job as a head and neck surgeon if you are only an ablative surgeon. Most places want someone who can do both, and I decided at that point that I should at least be exposed to it to a sufficient degree in fellowship. So that became more important with both an ablative and a recon exposure. I personally was never that interested in tours or skull-based surgery, so that didn't really play into my decision at all. Mine was mainly like, how much recon do I want to do? And I think in retrospect, it was a really great decision because number one, I love reconstructive surgery. I enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. And I think 
having that exposure, even if you don't love it, makes you a better ablative surgeon and just a better team member in general. And now in your current job, are you expected to do microvascular or no? Yes. I actually do um, mostly microvascular recon. That's kind of my the brunt of what I do. And then I do a little bit of ablative. So kind of the complete opposite of what I originally thought when I started this whole process. But so far, I really love it. So it's working out okay. Yeah, great. <laughs> so when you applied, what factors in your application do you think helped you to match? I think probably the most important part of the application is actually your letters of recommendation. I think like all subspecialties in laryngology, it's a small group of people who do head and neck. And as a fellow, you're spending a lot of time with such a small group of mentors that they really are looking for someone that they can trust and work well with. And I think if you come in with these strong letters from your head and neck mentors during residency, and they're probably people that they know that the fellowship program is going to trust the opinion of that mentor. The other aspects of the application, I mean, ask about research. And I do think that's important because they do talk about it in every interview that I was, that I went on. But I don't think, I think you just need like a couple of solid projects and publications, not like this extensive list of research. On the application, they do ask you about your in-service scores, but Although I was worried about that part because my scores were decent, but not like out of this world, like that never even came up in any of the interviews. No one talked about it at all. So I think that part of the application is pretty low on their list of things that um, they look for when matching an applicant. Okay. So I'd say letters and research probably are the two most important. Yeah. And, you know, we've done a few episodes uh, about different subspecialties before, and that's the thing that keeps coming up again and again. Because I think fellowship yeah. is a lot more about who you know than residency for sure. Yeah. And I, I think it's also just like how you connect with people in the interview, because unlike residency where they ask you a lot of, you know, maybe unusual questions or ethics questions or things like that. I had a neck fellowship interviews are basically, can we sit down and have a conversation for 20 to 30 minutes and not, you know, stare at the clock or feel awkward or run out of things to say. So it was just a lot more like, I want to get to know you and see if we could get along for a year and work together. So. Did you go to the operating room when you went on interviews? I only went to the operating room at a couple of places, Vanderbilt and University of Washington in Seattle. Oh, and um, Indiana. I'll had you come into the operating room, mostly just to observe and kind of chat while someone else was operating. The rest of the interviews were all just kind of in the office or, you know, take you on a tour. It's a very active medical center around here. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about your fellowship experience. How did you decide to go to Toronto and what did you like about it? I settled on Toronto mostly because they have a really strong reputation for head and neck. I think all of the mentors there have been doing this for many years, are very well known and very well respected, both for their kind of ablative practice as well as their reconstructive practice. And 
I also really like the idea of going to a different country and seeing how a different system works. I would say like the fellowship is so fun, but so busy and so stressful. And the year like totally flies by. I I think it was the fastest year of my life to date. <laughs> and you know, I think your goal going in, or at least my goal going in, was I just want to see and do as much as possible. And with Toronto, that's great because they are super busy. The Canada's healthcare system has designated centers of excellence so that you can only get head and neck cancer care at certain places in each province. So in Ontario, Toronto was the busiest one. So like the volume of patients that you saw was incredible. And the breadth of the pathology, just, I mean, you're inundated with learning opportunities, which is great. And then the parts of fellowship overall, I actually really liked the best in Toronto was they had Friday morning surgical conference where all of the head and neck faculty and all of the fellows would get together and the fellows would present every single OR case that was planned for the next week. And um, Dr. Ralph Gilbert ran it and he would basically put the fellow on the hot seat and he would quiz you on your blade of approach, like what controversies there might be with that particular case, like what new literature is out there, how would you do the reconstruction and what are your options? And it was incredibly stressful, but it was probably the best learning experience I've ever had. Great. So how was it different in Canada as far as the medical system? Oh my gosh. I probably could do a whole other (laughs) podcast (laughs) talking about (laughs) Canada versus the U.S. It was really, really interesting. It was, I mean, bottom line, like Canadians get really good health care. It's just a different mentality, both from the patient side and the physician side. And there are definite pluses and minuses to their healthcare system. But I think the part of the whole thing that really stood out to me the most is that in the U.S., we are really fortunate that we can do so much like research and development relatively easy. Like we can use new technology in the OR, we can use new instruments and new products. And that opportunity just does not exist in Canada because if it's not standard of care or if it's too expensive, it's just not available because their healthcare system can't afford it, basically. Mm. So I think things that we take for granted, like, oh, I want to use a harmonic and gosh, we dropped the harmonic on the floor. Like, let's just grab another one. I mean, we, that happens in the U.S., whereas in Canada, they're like, oh, you want to use a harmonic? Well, the patient's going to have to pay $500 to use a harmonic. <laughs> and off from bid, you drop it on the floor. They're not going to just pull another one out for you. So it's, there's lot, lots of little differences, but that was the one that really stood out to me the most. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So when did you start looking around for jobs? I started, I think, pretty early. I sent out some letters or inquiries to places that I was interested in in probably the beginning of August. Um, And I sent them my cover letter and my CV 
mostly because I wanted to get in touch with places before the academy meeting that's in the fall because I wanted to try to arrange a lot of meetings at academy and I think overall it was a really good strategy because when I went to academy I had eight interviews or kind of casual meetings with people and so it was a nice way to kind of see what was out there and screen a lot of places without having them or you spend a lot of money or time with travel so I would say start early and then the like the whole interview process took most of the year and I didn't actually finally sign a contract until April and when I talked to my other co-fellows both at Toronto and other programs it seemed like a pretty typical timeline for most people and how did you decide which job to take I talked to a lot of mentors, number one. I think, though, at the end of the day, the deciding factor was I really liked the chair at the University of Alabama. Um, I think in a meeting with uh, Dr. Carroll, I really felt like he understood my goals and what I was looking for in a career. And I I got the sense that he was going to be really supportive of the things that I wanted to do, especially in the research realm. Um, I think, you know, coming in and saying that you want to do research with, without a huge grant or a lab already, like some people are not as receptive of that and they, they're a little bit more skeptical that you're actually going to be able to do it. And with Dr. Carroll, he was like, oh yeah, hundred percent, we're behind you. We'll like, whatever you need, we'll support you while you work on getting your own funding. And that really was the, the deciding factor. I was like, if your chair is behind you, then I think the, the job will be great. The rest of the little things that you might not like about it will sort itself out. And speaking of the research, what kind of research are you looking at doing? Does your PhD training play into that in any way? So I'm kind of actually circling back to some of the things that I did in graduate school when I was getting my PhD. So uh, during that time, I was working on the microbiome and how it influenced or uh, worked with the immune system in the gut for like chronic inflammatory bowel disease. And so I'm trying to move a lot of that into oral cavity and the microbiome and how it impacts the tumor microenvironment and inflammation uh, in cancer. So that's the goal. (laughs) I'm still getting a lot of things up and running here. Now I got some IRBs in and hopefully getting the ball rolling. But the the job I took is actually a 50-50 clinical research position with the plan to have kind of a full lab up and running in the nearish future. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's a big undertaking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Feels a little bit overwhelming sometimes. (laughs) So in your experience, do most head and neck fellowship trained otolaryngologists pursue academic jobs or private practice? I actually think it's pretty even, to be honest. I think there's the perception maybe that you can't do everything in head and neck in private practice, but I I don't think that's the case anymore. I feel like there are a lot of very successful private practice groups that do the whole breadth of head and neck, so tours and microvascular reconstruction and PLM. And 
I'm trying to think out of people that I was close to in fellowship. I would say it was split kind of evenly with people doing private practice versus academics. And are there enough positions when you come out of fellowship that you feel like it's fairly easy to find a job? Retrospectively, yes. <laughs> if you had asked me that question last fall, I probably would have been like, we are all the head and neck jobs. Um, <laughs> I think like every year it seems like people are a little bit nervous about the number of jobs that are out there for head and neck. But I I don't know any fellow from the last year who was not able to find a head and neck job. So I think kind of throughout the year, there was a lot of stress and anxiety about the what seemed like a very limited number of positions, but then everyone found something. So, and this year, it seems like already there's a lot more job offers out there than there was last year. So that's, that's great. Yeah. Okay. So I think I know the answer to this question, but if you had to do it again, <laughs> would you choose the same fellowship? 110%. <laughs> I, I love it. I love coming to work every day. So much fun. What's your favorite part? Well, I mean, going back to what I said before, I mean, my still absolute favorite part is the patients. I, I love my patients, but I actually also have really come to love doing the reconstruction. And I think it's because it allows you a little bit of like creativity or you can be a little bit artistic with how you design your reconstruction or what tissue you're going to use. And I think there's still a lot of areas for research and reconstruction. So we still have a long way to go to like improve the form and function after these surgeries. So I just, I don't know, I like that ability to be a little bit more creative. Um, yeah, that reminds me. And I also me. like the challenge. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say that reminds me of when you made all of those ears, noses, and tongues in fondant for, that was yes. for a graduation party. And uh, that was really hilarious that you made all of those in, in fondant. Yes. Fondant is much more forgiving media than, <laughs> than tissue and muscle. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. I use that sometimes for my reconstruction. <laughs> yeah. All right. But, so my last um, question for you is if sometime in the future you have a child and they tell you, I want to be an otolaryngologist, what are you going to say? I would say you should be a head and neck surgeon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Gosh, what would I say? I mean, I think like in all seriousness, I would tell them that they've made an excellent choice. I think overall people who go into otolaryngology are very happy, satisfied physicians and surgeons. I think our specialty as a whole is really awesome because we get to help patients with different quality of life issues. So whether that's, you know, hearing or their speech or their ability to swallow or even, you know, how well they're sleeping at night. They're not the sickest patients, but these are like really key, important quality of life things for them. And so I think that's really cool that we get to help them with those problems. 
And then, you know, if you do want to go more into the realm of the sicker patients, I think head and neck is really rewarding. I would just tell them that they have to, you know, be willing to make a few small lifestyle sacrifices if they're going to do head and neck because our patients do have complications and they do have emergencies that happen. Someone might come into your clinic needing an awake trach when you had dinner plans or or a free flap goes down on a Sunday when you're out hiking, like for me, <laughs> last Sunday, and you have to rush back and go in and take care of it. But um, I think like all of the other aspects of our specialty in general and head and neck make those kind of inconveniences very tolerable. Great. Anything else you'd like to add? I was going to say, I, I have really been surprised with, you know, I do think that I got amazing training in Toronto and saw a lot of different things, but I have been surprised starting here at the University of Alabama that right from the get-go, there were things that I was like, huh, I haven't seen that before. <laughs> so it's like you're constantly learning. Never, never ends. Yeah. All right. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah. If you like what you just heard or didn't, please go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There you will find a link to a brief survey so I can improve the quality of this podcast. I would greatly appreciate your help.